Hey there, Twitter. Welcome to this season of Impeachment. Today, we begin our coverage of the hearings with Hayes Brown, and then Charlie XCX is here to chat with us. So you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Stafford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Today, impeachment hearings are underway, but first, we have some important overnight news. Here's a tweet from CNN. 1995 John would be very perplexed to be following 2018 Idris Elba as sexiest man alive. John Legend tweeted after being crowned people's sexiest man alive for 2019. Mm, and here's a tweet from Jarrett Wesselman. Uh, I love that people chose John Legend as their sexiest man alive because watching Chrissy Teigen dunk on trolls who disagree with their selection is going to be more entertaining than any film this year. And it has been. Yeah. You see, she, you know, she preempted the announcement by saying, I have the best news ever. I can't wait to share. And, you know, she just launched a website, but I did not see this coming. This was surprising. And I'm happy for them. You know, Ar what's his name? Arthur the Aardvark? That's what John Legend looks like. <laughs> yeah. Is now the sexiest person alive and bravo. Okay, so for me, this is really about setting the, the expectations that People Magazine has set okay. for us from previous years. Mm -hmm. So I was happy about this, but I think mostly because I was so... Um, traumatized by the Blake Shelton cover. <laughs> no one's ever getting over that. <laughs> anyone else, any man, will also be the sexiest man alive when Blake Shelton is the bar. So I understand your logic here completely. I think the Blake Shelton incident recently really made us like very excited for John Legend, but people have forgotten that the very first sexiest man alive is someone that's even more problematic and he has been erased from our history books. Do you know who in 1985 was the very first inaugural sexiest man alive? I do not know. I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm also thinking it would be like, I don't know, like uh, David Hasselhoff or so like good. a Michael Bolton type. Like I'm thinking, give me a really 80s that's, that's close. hair situation. Someone close. who is like okay. fairly irrelevant today. Very, very close. Are you going to tell me who it is? Yes, are you ready? It was none other than Mel Gibson. <laughs> Your face. I've been waiting to tell you this all damn morning. Mel Gibson, who makes sense at the time, but if you look at what Mel, Mel Gibson he... has become, you're <clears throat> a mess. Wow. Yeah, so there you go. You can be problematic even after becoming why a are we? Why are we like trusting people? Like, like there's no reason. How's like, like last year, thanks to Idris Elba, like people has now rebuilt this much of my, mm -hmm. like a little bit more trust. John Legend, okay, mm -hmm. but like, Ew. I'm sorry, the foundation is broken. It, it is, it is, yes. Like, why are we Yeah, even, exactly. This is not what we should be measuring ourselves against. But it's something we do every year because wow. it is fun. So let's take it to the timeline. Who would you choose for Sexiest Man Alive? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Well, here's a tweet from Kyle Griffin. Today is the day the first public impeachment hearing begins at 10 a.m. William Taylor, the acting ambassador to Ukraine, and George Kent, the deputy assistant secretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs, will appear before the House Intelligence Committee. And it's time, it's now time for our segment on impeaching Trump. And joining us now to discuss is host of BuzzFeed News' Impeachment Today podcast, Hayes Brown. Good morning. Morning, guys. So remind us quickly, how did we get here today? So we got here two months ago. Adam Schiff first issued a subpoena for a whistleblower complaint, which left a lot of people immediately going, qua? So <laughs> uh, fast forward to uh, 
what, 50 days ago now, Nancy Pelosi launches an impeachment inquiry based on the fact that President Trump, in a phone call with Ukraine's President Zelensky, uh, basically asked him for political favors in that call. Since then, we've learned a lot about what was going on in the background, uh, this shadow foreign policy that was being run by Rudy Giuliani, a lawyer to Trump, and a, bunch, a weird cast of characters trying to influence Ukraine to grant those favors that Trump directly asked for in that phone call. We've read the transcript, as the president has insisted that we do, and now we've gotten to the point that we have moved from closed-door depositions to public open hearings where witnesses will testify about what they knew and when about this shadow campaign. Well, you mentioned the witnesses, and uh, as we said, we're going to hear from George Kent and William Taylor first. Um, why is it important that we're hearing from them today as this all kicks off? So it's important we hear from them because they're two career foreign service officials. You know, they are diplomats by trade. They have no, like, political leanings. Their oath of office to the Constitution and not to the president. So they're going to tell a story about this campaign to push Ukraine's new president into interfering, basically, in U.S. domestic politics in the interest of two things. One, opening an investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter, a company that he worked with, and also into the origins of the Russia investigation. So and a bunch of debunked conspiracy theories. So they're going to talk about how all of this played out inside of the government and the many, many concerns from actual professionals about how this was all playing out. Mm -hmm. So what are Democrats hoping to gain today from these public hearings, and which crime are they really going to be focusing on? So they're really hoping to push forward this idea that, now that people are actually tuning in, they want to push forward this idea that the call was not perfect, that actual people who actually deal with foreign policy, unlike Rudy Giuliani, were very disturbed by this uh, holdup. There was a holdup of aid at the same time that all this was happening. They want to look into whether that aid was held up in order to push Ukraine to uh, give these favors to Trump as well. So they're going to be asking questions about that. They're going to be trying to uh, link all of this together in a story that shows that Trump has abused his office for personal gain. Hmm. So how are Trump and uh, Republicans reacting to these hearings today, uh, you know, of course, uh, as they begin being televised in public? Uh, poorly. They're reacting poorly to it. <laughs> uh, they have a couple of different defenses that are going on. Trump is insisting that not only did he, is none of this impeachable, he did nothing wrong. And he wants Republicans to parrot that line. Meanwhile, some are trying to out the line that, oh yeah, this was inadvisable, this was bad, but not impeachable. Some are trying to throw Rudy Giuliani and the people he was working with under the bus and say Trump had nothing to do with it. So they have a couple of different defenses up in the air, but none of them are really like hit on the substance of what happened in that phone call and all the campaign around it. Mm. So Hayes, what will happen after these hearings are concluded? So after these hearings have concluded, and so reminder, we have today, we have Friday, and then three days next week where we'll hear from between today and then another 10 witnesses. So the hearings themselves, we're going to be hearing from the top 45 minutes on each side of lawyers asking these witnesses questions, so way different than normal hearings. After all that, Schiff and the Intelligence Committee will write a report, basically, that they will send on to the House Judiciary Committee. The House Judiciary Committee will write up whatever articles of impeachment they see fit. They'll vote. The full House votes. And if they decide to impeach the president, it then goes to the Senate for a trial. Now, if it goes to the Senate uh, for a trial, of course, that means that uh, any senators who are on the campaign trail will have to go back uh, to be a juror. Mm -hmm. So uh, how could this impact uh, the 2020 election? Uh, a lot. Like, a lot of the front runners right now are, are senators, say, for, you know, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg. So they're going to have to be sitting in the Senate chamber 
from, I believe, 12.30 until around 6.30, six days a week, unable to go out and be on the trail. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, they have to be there silent while the testimony is being presented in the Senate. Mm. So, Hayes, what tips do you have for folks watching these hearings, and what should they be looking out for? Well, tip one, subscribe to Impeachment Today for all to catch up. <laughs> Plug it! Um, but for real, um, my suggestion to you is to go through, if you have the time, go through and actually read the documents themselves. All of them are public at this point, and those that haven't been released yet will be soon. So go through, read the transcript, read the whistleblower complaint, read uh, the deposition complaints. I would suggest that you figure out how you want to consume this. Uh, I would suggest that you figure out whether you want to devote time to actually watching the hearings, or if not, how you want to catch up with it every day, because it's going to be a lot. Well, uh, you have a big day ahead of you, of course, so thank you so much for joining us, Hayes. Glad to be here. And to echo Hayes, remember to subscribe to Impeachment Today, hosted by Hayes Brown, wherever you get your podcasts to get your daily peach tea. Ooh. All right, here's a tweet from Christopher Mathias. Yes, many of us uh, already knew that Stephen Miller is a white nationalist, but the significance of these re revelations in this article cannot be overstated. We have a White House senior advisor whose worldview is shaped by explicit white supremacist literature. Here's a tweet from Michael Edison Hayden. Hate Watch, previously, Hate Watch reviewed over 900 previously private emails Stephen Miller sent to Breitbart during the run-up to the 2016 election. Miller shared white nationalist material. He pushed racist stories. Michael is a senior investigative reporter at the Southern Poverty Law Center, and he joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. Uh, excited to talk to you about this story. So what was the impetus to review all of these emails? Well, I mean, uh, I think it's important to understand that, like, I focus primarily on, you know, neo-Nazis, white nationalists. Um, you know, my area of expertise was always, like, internet Nazis, as you, as you would colloquially uh, call them. Uh, you know, I was not looking to do a story about Stephen Miller. Um, what happened is somebody, I mean, our source was Katie McHugh, who used to work for Breitbart, uh, showed me an email uh, in which Stephen Miller uh, shared a link to the white nationalist website, VDARE. And she said, does this interest you? I said, yeah, I said, yes, it does. And, and I um, approached it not with a desire to like report on Stephen Miller or, any, or anything like that. I, I approached it as I do with any kind of leaks I get about uh, far-right extremists and reported it out that way. Mm. So 80% of his emails revolved around race or immigration. What generally oh, speaking <laughs> his perspective there? <laughs> Uh, one, one more time. What, what are his perspectives? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. he doesn't say he doesn't have a kind. He, Stephen Miller doesn't have a kind word to say about a non-white person in these emails, um, and we only have the 900 or so. I think it's like 938, 940, something like that, that he sent to Katie McHugh. We don't have the ones he sent to Matthew Boyle at Breitbart. The ones he sent to, you know, the private ones he sent to Julia Hahn, who's now working in the White House with him. We don't have the emails he sent to Steve Bannon privately. We only have the ones uh, in which, uh, ones where he, where he was talking to McHugh. And that matters because he may have sent thousands of emails to Breitbart. Um, he is overwhelmingly concerned with the threat of, of non-white immigration to the U.S. Um, he is... Uh, always uh, on the lookout, it feels like, for uh, small local stories where there are people with either um, Muslim names, um, you know, Arabic names, um, names uh, that, you know, Hispanic uh, last names, and, um, you know, any kind of local story where somebody's committing a crime and 
he is looking for Breitbart to turn those things into stories um, so he can further his uh, agenda, basically. Um, I, was, I was extremely shocked reading the emails um, and, and you know, quite frankly, as an American, really disappointed. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, one of the big points of uh, these emails is that, uh, you know, though a lot of people may have known uh, that he had this point of view, uh, now we actually have the proof. And to have someone in the White House who has an affinity for these kinds of views is, you know, of course, uh, deeply disturbing. Um, so kind of connect some of those dots. How have we seen uh, essentially the views that Stephen Miller uh, espoused in these emails reflected in some of his policies and, and his work in government? Yeah, I mean, I mean, use the we use the word affinity for for white nationalism um, in, in here, but it's it's important to understand what that affinity does um, in the context of writing policy. Um, if he is getting his policy ideas from white nationalist um, from white nationalist thinkers, I mean, that to me is a global concern. I'll give you one particular example. Um, he talks about temporary protective status for refugees um, in, in this. And, and he uses as a reference point, he says, here, you know, essentially, here, look at this. And he shares a link from VDARE. Um, and it's a VDARE story about um, temperature protective status. Now, the Trump administration has removed temporary protective status for many non-white countries uh, since uh, coming to power. And that is extremely concerning. If you... Um, you know, just for some background, what temporary protective status is, it's like if there's a hurricane or whatever natural disaster, people can stay in the United States for a limited amount of time. This was something that was established not by some, you know, not by President Obama, but actually by Republican President George H.W. Bush. And, um, uh, you know, the fact that, that, that Miller is, is particularly obsessed with making sure that people who desperately need <laughs> shelter do not come to the United States, you know, is, is I mean, it's, if, it's, if it's coming from white nationalist thinkers, um, that is an issue that impacts not just the United States, but, um, again, the world. Um, one other example uh, of that is just he reads this, this horrifically racist um, dystopian book called Camp of the Saints, um, which portrays uh, non-white refugees as being monstrous, uh, you know, rape-crazy, you know, uh, animals. And, uh, you know, we see that the number of refugees we've taken in year after year has decreased. Um, and I think it's going to be like 18,000 in the coming fiscal year. So, um, you know, to me, this is really uh, damning and also, also uh, very scary. Mm, so, Michael, what are the larger implications of these emails? I think the larger implications of the emails um, is that we have to look at our country and decide what we, what we want to what we want to have as our future. I mean, this guy is talking about um, our you know our you know preserving our heritage, the heritage of Calvin Coolidge, and what he's talking about um, for people who are um, you know. Who people who understand this type of writing? What he's talking about is 1924, the Immigration Act of 1924 to 1965, Hart Seller. And during that time, the United States had racial quota laws that were based on eugenics and race science. Mm -hmm. Now, do we want somebody writing policy who believes in eugenics and race science? I don't know. You, someone should ask Stephen Miller does he believe in race science? Does he believe in eugenics? Does he believe people, you know, does he believe non white people have a lower IQ? I mean, these are these are questions he needs to ask because the people, the writers that he reads, believe these things. 
Mm. I mean, I also, you know, I mean, uh, you know, my mother uh, came to the United States in 1968 from Egypt. You know, I read this. I was, I was completely um, just ashamed when I read it. I mean, it's a really uh, extraordinarily depressing idea that this guy is writing policy for this country. Mm, it is. It's quite stunning, Michael. Quite stunning. Well, thank you so much for your reporting and for yeah. joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, you'll see my interview with Charlie XCX and the new girl group she's created, Nasty Cherry. But up next, it's Fire Tweets. Fire! Fire! Welcome back. It's now time for the hottest part of the show, Fire Tweets. Are you ready to do this? Always. <laughs> Always. She stays ready, y'all. Stay yeah. ready. All right. I, but you know what's not hot? What? Many of people's picks for their Sexiest Man Alive covers. Wow. <laughs> Mamacita, you tweeted, nobody, the waiter at Olive Garden. <laughs> nobody wants that pepper. I walked past an Olive Garden the other day, and I, I do want to go back. There's some nostalgia there. I mean, not for the cheese, because this is referring to all that cheese crazy. Is it for cheese or for pepper? No, you're but, right. It's for the cheese. It's for the cheese, isn't it, right? Or they come maybe over grinding and like, It's one of those. They just yeah. grind too much at the, at the Olive Garden. And they give you too much bread, which is a great thing. <laughs> all right, well, technically, Ron, you tweet it. How would you describe your life? Basically, when you try to make an omelet but fuck it up and end up with scrambled eggs, but it's okay. Scrambled eggs are still good, you know? Might not be the plan you started off with. Yeah, I mean, that's how I was taught to make omelets, was that like, you try it this way, and if you mess it up, just turn to scrambled eggs, it's fine. It's not, it's not enough. Then it's like scrambled eggs with ham and cheese. It gets mm. real cute, elevate it. Mm. Shower thoughts, you tweeted. As a kid, a weekend with no plans is like torture. As an adult, a weekend with no plans feels like winning the lottery. <sighs> I just felt relaxed hearing that. Like, I yeah. don't have anything I have to do. Woo, because, girl, these weeks are overscheduled. But it's funny, because, like, when I was a kid, I would get really mad if I didn't have any plans. Oh, yeah, you get anxious, oh, and you're, like, it. acting out, eating too much sugar and ice cream. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Well, let's take it to the timeline. How would you describe your ideal adult weekend? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Brunch, going to bed at 10 p.m. <laughs> you were quick to that. <laughs> That's it. Wow, dreams, hopes, goals. Well, partner, you tweet it. People who wear cute outfits to the airport, what are you doing? I used to be one of these people because I, I don't know, I like I just wanted to travel with a full face of makeup and, and now I'm like, why, why? I mean, I kind of get dressed up sometimes because how else are you gonna find a man? I mean, sure. and he's international girl. You know, he got he at least got an ID to get on the plane. I think that's a good <laughs> excuse. I think that's a good excuse. <laughs> I'm like looking at his ticket like you in business class. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tune of the day. Yes. Comes from Mo. Mm. How was someone like you single? You about to find out, just hang tight. Me meeting every man in New York City. Oh! <laughs> Thank you for the ding. Oh. Thank you, America, for the ding. Well, coming up, you can see Alex to sit down with Charlie XCX and Nasty Cherry. More aim to DM is up next. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Instagram started hiding likes in Australia months ago. Influencers there say the change made them more chill about posting pictures. Hmm, and here's a tweet from Casey Newton, taking one last look at everyone's Instagram likes to record their place in the social hierarchy. Here's a tweet from Jill Gutowitz, breaking, I just heard directly from Instagram that all gay people will be allowed to keep their likes because it's all they have. This is huge. 
Uh, Thank you, Instagram. Look at this. Gay rights, equality. One could, one could hope. Special one could class hope. of citizens, us gays. Actually, that's a joke. We don't get to keep our likes because we don't get to ever to get to keep shit, really. Yeah, but actually the thing that Instagram is doing is that it will be hiding your number of likes okay. externally. And so you'll still be able to see the, the likes that you're getting, but it'll just say below your photo, like, this has been liked by so-and-so and others. But why? I only get liked likes so other people can see the likes. Well, I think that a lot of people <laughs> feel that way. Uh, but I guess for, you know, some of the... These Australian Instagram mm -hmm. influencers that BuzzFeed News spoke with, uh, they were happy about this okay. change. So, but you know, this got us talking earlier mm -hmm. all about how if Twitter just added a grid or like the stories feature, mm -hmm. we would probably completely drop the other platforms. Like right? just consolidate all platforms yeah. on Twitter. Because I do like the fast-paced nature of tweets where I'm like, news, information soon. But the, the how they deal with photos really mess up with me. So if they did have a good grid, I'd be like, yeah, this is cute. I get to see that you're smart and cute because Instagram is notoriously <laughs> for people who can't be smart, potentially. I don't know. Some of these girls are having a hard time writing captions. So. I know, well, but, but the thing is, like, I actually think that likes are a metric of the... Con like, likes give us more information about someone's photo yeah. or content, and also being able to see who likes a photo. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, in this age of like misinformation and crazy memes that people put out, that actually can like give us insight, insight into the yeah. kind of content that someone is consuming. Oh, so you're saying you don't so, like that you won't be able to see who's like. I don't know, I mean, I, I guess I, I feel like it, on the one hand, it's a good thing because then you're just, you're not like throwing your crazy uh, gender reveal party so that you could yeah. get a bunch of likes, but uh, on the other hand, now we have less insight into yeah. some ways that people are using the platform. Where I see this really impacting my day-to-day -day life is that I just realized I use Instagram to find out if someone's single or if they're <laughs> dating someone. And because you can always tell through like the trend of like someone when they're dating someone, if you have a mutual that you're like, is that his boyfriend? Mm. You see that they've liked every single thing. So either they're their boyfriend or they want to be, and that helps me make better decisions. So if I can't see it, I'm about to ruin a lot of marriages potentially. I like that that is your problem. <laughs> That's where you're bringing. I love my confidence with that. Well, I'm gonna I mean, break down a marriage because I didn't see a like. Well, the other thing that this made me think about was how uh, Twitter has said that, uh, like, retweets, the just the the mindless retweet is kind of an issue on the platform. Yes. And I again, I like having being able to see how many people have retweeted something or interacted with something mm -hmm. or liked something because I feel like that is more information into the kind of content that people yes. are interested in. Um, or I actually just take this to like a really dark place. And all like you know, you can see what trolls are doing, basically. Well, there you go. And you well, can see how badly misinformation is ruining everything. So, do you think we should just all move to Twitter now? Now that likes are going. I there? don't know, because like Instagram is my like happy place yeah. where I, I use it for a lot of personal stuff and like use it to be escapist. Mm -hmm. And Twitter is where like I get real and <laughs> feel sad about the world. So Instagram is where you slide into DMs. So, you know, I'm not trying to slide into some Twitter DMs. That's a mess. No, that yeah, would be that such would be, a mess. Yeah. It's a whole other thing. Well, let's take it to the timeline. How do you feel about Instagram hiding likes? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Up next, Zach is sitting down with actor Adrian Seymour. Kelly Goff tweeted, after seeing four colored girls at the Public Theater in New York, I was on the train home and two black women in their 70s told me they'd seen the original production in 1976 and were still moved by it, thanks to Ntozaki Shange. And here to talk about the choreo poem's return to the stage and life after Orange is the New Black is actor Adrian C. Moore. Good morning. Hi, Zach. Hi, I was Googling you this week and I have okay. a fun fact. We are both from Nashville. <gasps> And we both moved to Chicago for school. Are you serious? Yes, yes. yes. 
Nashville. Yes, girl. I was like, wow, we are the same person, it looks like. <laughs> Don't you just love when you meet Nashville people? Yes, out in the wild, Especially not in Nashville. in New York City, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you're from Nashville, you're Southern, you're... You mm-hmm. left. <laughs> you know they don't you leave. in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to show that before we jumped in. But so thank you for sharing that moment Absolutely. with me. Well, what was your first introduction to For Color Girls? My first introduction, I believe, was in high school. Um, like, like, you know, a lot of young women. But I think at that time, you know, being that I was in the South and mm-hmm. I wasn't around New York and, you know, this, this tri-state area where the... The, the craze of this show hit in the 70s, also I wasn't born. Um, I think I had a very um, innocent mm-hmm. introduction to it. And then I was in high school, so I was just running them streets. Yeah. Um, but I didn't come back to it again until I was in my 20s. And I had decided to re-enter into the entertainment world and needed some audition material. And the book was sitting on my shelf, and so I said, oh, let me take this book out. I'm sure there's some monologues in here that I can shape, yeah. you know, for 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 a um, black girl of color. And it was actually Lady in Yellow's graduation oh. night, which I now portray um, on the show, in the show, uh, that was a piece that I used for a long time when I, when I was doing auditions. Wow, so why was it important for you after Orange is the New Black Rap to come back to this play now on the stage in New York? It was important because, well, one, after being on a show like Orange that is so forward-thinking and so unapologetically honest about what's going on in our society and who we are as a people and who we are as a, as a whole, that responsibility of being truthful in the work mm-hmm. and the things that you stand for and the things that you talk about, you know, is something that I wanted to continue. And so when For Color Girls came about, well, one, I love the theater. I started mm-hmm. out in the theater. A lot of people don't know that I yeah. started out in the theater. Yes. You, did um, you study it at Northwestern? I, stu- I, st- I studied psychology, history, and religion at, at Northwestern, okay. but at the new school, I got my master's got in uh, performing arts, that I, I, I consider the theater like a gym. Mm. And this show has been a gym for me mm-hmm. every uh, you know hour and a half uh, workout every night. But it's also touching on so many topics that are integral in the um, in the community of women, in African-American community. Mm. And so I wanted to be a part of that conversation. And I know Intizaki wanted to talk about what's going on, you know, post Me Too movement, mm-hmm. post Time's Up. You know, what is it, what do these words, how do these words resonate with audiences and in people after the aftermath of you know, those movements. So yeah. I just wanted to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, you know, that conversation's been going on for 40 years. Mm-hmm. I know Intozaki was making changes all the way up into her death, mm-hmm. but the original play was the same themes of violence, trauma, mm-hmm. black girls coming together. Why do you think that conversation has maintained for so long? Because unfortunately it's still happening mm. in our society today. And I think what's, what is the fortunate part about it is that women are being more vocal about it yeah. and that they're um, unafraid to, you know, to say this is my experience and my story. And to add to that, you know, because I don't want people to think that this is um, a choreo poem about bashing men, as it, and, and it wasn't that in the 70s. Um. Um, or, or that we live our lives in trauma. That's not what this is about. But for me, it's a, it's a celebration of finally having a chance to voice who we are, what we experience, what is on our, our hearts. Mm. Um, this play is just as much of a celebration and a joyful piece and in a, in a sisterhood of, uh, or bringing a, a community of women together as it is 
that, you know, to honestly talk about the trauma in our lives. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that this play is a gym, like a gym for you, because it is really mm -hmm. physical. Mm -hmm. Y'all are singing, dancing, moving. Rolling around on the floor, time. literally. But when I walked out, I thought about the emotional labor y'all were doing on that stage. Yeah. And I was wondering, how do you all take care of each other off stage as a sisterhood? Because you're dealing with some heavy, heavy things. Yeah, well, I think a part of that began in the early process of, of rehearsal. Mm. Uh, we had four weeks, like like typical, um, yeah. you know, shows that are going up in a month, and we were very vulnerable with each other from the beginning in in terms of sharing our experiences, how the pieces and the the choreo, the choreo poems related to us in a personal way, and so there was a lot of, you know, crying and just sharing, and we would always, you know, hold each other, support mm -hmm. each other, hug each other, talk to each other afterwards. And we continue that through the show each night, even after the show. I mean, there are times where, you know, some of the pieces hit me in a different way and, yeah. and it'll be very emotional and I'll be crying, you know, through the piece. And then after the show, my girls will rally behind me and hug me and hold me. And um, it's very cathartic that yeah. way. It, and it seems that way. When I was watching, I was like, they got each other. They yeah. actually do like each other. Because sometimes oh, you'd be watching sure. plays, and you're like, they don't get along. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, a lot of us, we after after um, the show, we go down and, and have drinks, and we uh, engorge the food mm -hmm. because we're so hungry after the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you have to be hungry because y'all are doing work yeah. on every, every level. So beyond the show, you have a one-woman stage play coming out soon? Can you, what can you tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. Um, I'm working on a piece called I Want to Be a White Woman. Okay. And um, it is a one-woman show, very similarly tackling, uh, tack, tackling, what's tackling. the word? Tackling. Mm -hmm. Some of the issues that Ntozaki brings up in For Colored Girls about, you know, we live in a society that is, as much as we, we, we are moving the needle forward on, you know, Letting, letting everyone have a voice mm. in our society, there's still a majority voice, a dominant mm -hmm. you know, voice in, in mainstream, in, in how we market you know, products and the stories that we tell. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to sort of have this absurdist view of, okay, well, you know, as a kid growing up, um, I lived in predominantly black neighborhoods. I then moved to predominantly white neighborhoods, went to predominantly white schools. Mm -hmm. And so I was always the the one yeah. you know person and trying to fit in and trying to still you know find myself and be myself but then also having to um, acclimate to a mm -hmm. world and to a group of people that weren't like me and so it kind of stems from my childhood mm. um, about wanting to find and love and be myself but constantly be, you know being in a in a in a world and a culture that didn't look like me so what if I was white, what would that be like? Would I get the privilege that I mm -hmm. feel that I saw growing up all the time or that I feel like I continue to see, you know, in the world today? So mm -hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a humorous look into that um, I am so idea. excited. <laughs> As you're speaking, I was like, yeah, same place. Grew up in the same place, yeah. this experience, get it. Yeah. I think a lot of us have this experience. Yeah, this and, we, and, we, and we see it today. I mean, like I said, I know we, we tell a lot of stories today that have a multicultural appeal but still there's this idea of, I want to make it to mainstream. Mm -hmm. I want to make it big. And yeah. what does that big mean? What does that big look like? Does mm -hmm. that mean white America's big, yeah. you know, world? And, and how do we sometimes, as a person of color, misappropriate our own culture 
you know, to get ahead mm. in mainstream world. Ooh, girl, you're taking me to church today. <laughs> well, before, before I let you go, speaking of mainstream, your show, Orange is the New Black, yeah. huge, huge show, been called one of the most important shows in the past decade. Mm -hmm. What do you make of the legacy of that show today? I find, what I, what I make of that legacy is that from a storytelling perspective, I think it revolutionized how we view stories mm -hmm. in terms of this whole binging idea. Mm -hmm. um, but then also in terms of being responsible for the stories we tell, you know, and how we tell them. Uh, this show, as I said earlier, was just unapologetically honest, almost to a point where, you know, in Hollywood, we want to kind of put a nice little bow and tie it up nice and everyone's happy and walks off into the sunset. But that wasn't the case with some of the stories um, in Orange. And I loved being a part of that brutal honesty. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when we look back on this show in 10 to 20 years, we will see, you know, what our society was really like at that yeah. time. Hopefully it will raise, and it has raised um, the world's consciousness mm -hmm. about what's going on and that we can no longer plead ignorant mm. to, you know, what's going on. Mm, Truth-telling, yeah. important these days. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank, thank you for so being much. here and the show. Wonderful, really good, really good work there. Well, For Color Girls is run at the Public Theater has been extended through December 8th. Be sure to check it out if you're in New York City. Up next, Alex talks to Joel Anderson about Slowburn season three. I've been totally out of the loop on literally everything the last month, but Slowburn 3 is on Tupac and Biggie, so I will continue my streak of being unavailable to the world. Joining me now is staff writer at Slate and the host of season three of Slowburn, Joel Anderson. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Alex. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so I'm I'm a big fan of all the Slowburn seasons. Um, folks may know about the podcast from the previous seasons, which were hosted by Leon Nafak. Of course, they were about Watergate and the Clinton impeachment. Um, but this season, uh, you take over to turn the lens on Biggie and Tupac. So why did you want to focus on them? Well, I mean, actually, it was chosen for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was a it was a really cool departure. I was just like, well, you know, this is a story that has as much relevance as that. It's like one of those big stories that you think mm -hmm. you know so much about. And actually, when you start pulling at these little threads, there's all these people that haven't spoken before, hmm. little stories that we've never heard before. And so it just seemed like it was ripe for, you know, some new treatment. Hmm. Well, here's a tweet from Jessica Lustig who says, just started listening to the new slow burn on Tupac and Biggie this morning, and it's terrific. Even if you follow the story back in the 90s, it's as if Joel Anderson added three more dimensions to it. I'm hooked. And I definitely felt that way, too, when I was listening. Like, there were so many threads of the story that I only kind of knew the broad strokes about. So was there anything that surprised you that you learned about um, Biggie and Tupac's friendship, even, when we, you were reporting this? Yeah, absolutely. So we talked to, you know, you know we got, at least got about a, you know, a couple dozen people on the record. And so we're talking to them about the extent of their friendship. Which is one thing, you know, in the 90s, you have this vague understanding that there was a relationship, mm -hmm. but not that there was an actual friendship, that these were dudes that hung out with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they, you know, Tupac cooked dinner for, you know, Biggie at his house in L.A., made him steak and Kool-Aid and macaroni and cheese. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, just thinking about them in a very human way. Um, and in fact, you know, one of the stories that didn't get into the podcast that Biggie's homeboy Chico Del Vec told us was about one time when Tupac called Biggie to come over to his hotel room in New York. He said, bring a gun and bring some flowers. And so... Biggie brings the gun, brings the flowers. They get there and they're like, what the hell? What are we going to do? So he get there, hands the gun to Tupac, hands him the flowers, and out of the back of the suite comes Madonna because Tupac was dating Madonna. And it was just like this 
I mean, that's like a very weird 90s yeah, story. Yeah, but it yeah. was just that kind of stuff that kept coming up over and over again. Oh, it's fascinating. Well, the, the latest episode uh, documents the 1995 uh, Source Awards. Um, and it seems like that was a big moment that really escalated the East Coast, West Coast beef. So can you tell me a little bit about that? And like, it, was that a big tipping point? Yeah, well, you know, it was one of the tipping points. Um, but it, it was one of the ones, at least it became very public, mm. that like there was all these, this underlying tension between these two camps, which was, you know, bad boy and death row. And um, uh, at the heart of it, a lot was that Suge was very jealous of Puffy and bad mm. boy. That they, they were, you know, Puffy and bad boy were ascendant. You know, they were this, you know, they were very flashy. You know, um, you know, making a lot of money, talking about the wealth they were doing, and you know, Death Row was at that time was the number one uh, record label, and they were like, "Oh, what, who are these guys that are infringing upon our territory?" And so, um, you know, when it when it you know came out at the '95 Source Awards, people were like, you know, Chug just decided that was the fo the form where he could you know release some of his uh, anger at uh, Puffy, and it was. It, but th there was a whole bunch of other stuff. There's a murder mm -hmm. that undergoes mm -hmm. this. If you listen to episode three, there's like an actual murder that's at the bottom mm -hmm. of this uh, tension as well. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think, you know, these these murders, the murders of Tupac and Biggie have famously never been cracked. Right. Do you ever think there'll be an appetite to revisit them and actually try to solve them? Are people even willing to continue to talk about them at this point? Oh, well, there's never not been an appetite to solve them, right? Like there's always been people, and especially people that are close to both Biggie and Pac that are like, hey, we would love to get some resolution on this, but there's also the understanding that it probably is not gonna come. Mm -hmm. Also with another understanding that we may already sort of know who did it, that there are, mm -hmm. there are people that have been identified as likely suspects that are either dead or in prison um, that are involved in those murders. But yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, I, I'll give you an example. You cannot request or get the LA a PD murder investigation file because they still consider it an ongoing case. Huh. It's unsolved, so you can't get that file from them, right? Oh. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's still out there. It's still theoretically in progress, but um, will we ever get, you know, the resolution that, oh, we know these two guys did it, they're gonna pay some sort of price for it, I, that probably would ever happen, unfortunately. Yeah. So what's coming up for the rest of the season? <laughs> a lot, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. We're, I mean, we're not even halfway done, but we're probably gonna, uh, Probably we're going to talk. To, we're going to talk about um, sort of the censorship wars at the time. So we covered some of that in episode two. But like, there's a real strain of black conservative activism, mm. um, people that were very concerned about the music that Tupac and Death Row were mm -hmm. doing. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about actually, you know, that 11 months that Tupac, because you know, it seemed like so much longer, but you really distill it. When Tupac got out of prison for a sexual abuse sexual abuse case. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was killed 11 months later. So it's a very short amount of time. So we're going to really focus and hone down on that time, like everything that incited that beef and everything that got... You know, Tupac was wild, man. It was, I mean, it was crazy. Like, in retrospect, if you look back at it, it's like, I can't believe somebody was willing to go that far in a mm, beef, you know? Mm. Um, well, it is so fascinating, and I've really been enjoying listening. So, Joel, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks again. And you can continue listening to The Story Unravel and subscribe to Season 3 of Slowburn on any platform where podcasts are available. Up next, you'll watch my sit-down interview with Charlie XCX and Nasty Cherry. Here's a tweet from Irrelevant. Charlie XCX made one of the best pop albums of 2019. I don't make the rules. Here with me is singer and songwriter Charlie XCX. Welcome. Great tweet. Yeah, yes, and you know, I, I fully support that tweet. Yeah. <laughs> well, your this album, Charlie, is finally out in the world. Um, it's been getting uh, nice reviews. Um, just how does it feel to, to finally have it out there? It feels great, you know. Um, I mean, it, I'm very proud of it, and um, it, 
has so many great features on, if I don't say so myself. So I'm, I'm very, very proud and um, happy that it's out in the world for people to enjoy or not depending yeah. on whether they have good taste or not. Okay. You released it single by single, and it is uh, the first album um, after a six-year break. Yeah. Um, even though you were releasing music during that time, what made you decide this was finally the right time? Um, I just kind of felt like... I don't know. I just felt, you know, actually a real good connection with my fans. Um, I feel like... I finally had felt comfortable to kind of open up and truly be myself when it came to making my music and not really think about any kind of decisions surrounding whether other people would like it or whether it would be successful commercially or the radio or whatever or anything like that. And really just started making the music that I love. And when I did that, I felt like my fans really kind of connected to me more. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'd done kind of like two uh, mixtapes worth mm -hmm. of material that uh, felt truly uh, true to who I am. And it just kind of felt like the right time to take that a step further and um, make the album. Well, I appreciate that uh, you mentioned you made some music with a few friends. Um, yeah. To mention some of those friends, um, there are collaborations with Lizzo, Sky Ferreira, Troy Sivan, um, and more. Um, how do you decide who to collaborate with? I mean, all of these people are so amazing in their own right. Um, but how do you decide who to collaborate with and, and the kind of topics you want to take on in these songs? Um, it really comes from first and foremost, being a fan of theirs and being inspired by them, you know, and, and I really, I really am inspired by all of the people on the, on the album. You know, I think each artist is so unique. Nobody can do what Lizzo does apart from Lizzo and the same with Troy, the same with Sky, the same with Cupcake, whoever, you mm -hmm. know, they're all truly unique and specific artists. And, and that's what draws me to them. I hate artists who are vague and, you know, are so like, I don't know, anyone could sing the songs mm. they sing. Like, no, that's not what these artists are like. They're truly unique. And so that's the initial kind of, um, the, the initial pull. And then also just liking them as people and getting on and feeling comfortable with them enough to want to get in the studio or send an idea and, and be really open. Well, one thing I noticed is that, you know, in addition to Christine and the Queens, you collaborate with a lot of LGBTQ plus identified artists. Um, there's Big Frida, Pablo Vittar, Kim Petras, um, Brooke Candy. Um, have you intentionally tapped into the queer community um, or is that those are just people you gravitated towards naturally? Um, it's kind of a natural um, gravitation thing. I mean, I'm very much immersed within the community when it comes to the people who I work with and my my friend group, you know? And mm -hmm. I'm also, uh, when it comes to my music, you know, I, I started performing in raves in London, which was my first introduction when I was like 15, 16, to not only like the party scene and party culture, but also a lot of LGBTQ mm -hmm. plus culture, uh, because the two are so, um, deeply linked and underground culture and queer culture are, are you know, mm. there's so much crossover. Well, you also wrote Shawn Mendes and Camila Cabello's hit song, Senorita, which, I mean, this song is, like, so huge at this point. Did you expect it to blow up the way that it has? Yeah, when I found, <laughs> when I found out they were singing it. Oh, really? 100%, I was like, cool, done deal. But, you know, you never know, like, before. And, and the process of that song, it was actually quite a long process you know the idea was written and then Sean and Camila heard it and I was actually on tour with Taylor and Camila at the time mm. and I was like oh like you <laughs> and you know Camila is a great writer herself as is Sean and they don't really just like take 
songs that have been written for them. So, you know, they sat with it for a while, they huh. did their thing, they, like, changed parts, wrote their own parts, and eventually it kind of happened. And I think they had the idea to do it together. I don't really know how it all went down, but it was a process, but it happened. And when it happened, I was like... Yes. 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 Um, well, they did their thing. I mean, they also had that video of themselves kissing, which like broke yeah. the internet. I don't know if yeah. you. Oh, I saw, saw that. If you had any thoughts about that? Well, ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So it's it's very cute, but for me, it's like Camila. I feel like she's like my li my little sister. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. She's like my little sister, um, and so I, I'm like. Ah! <laughs> you know, uh, but it's cute. She's yeah. cute, and they seem very, very cute together. Well, you have an experimental pop uh, label called Room Room Recordings, where you recently signed the band Nasty Cherry. Help introduce us to two of the band members joining today. Of course. Rolling Stone named them the best new artist of the year, and Paper Magazine says, without a doubt, Nasty Cherry will always be cooler than we could ever hope to be. Very true. And I call them the baddest, most juiciest, bitchiest, rockiest chicks out there. Everybody, please help me welcome Gabby and Debbie of Nasty Cherry. That you're what bringing us for the couch today. Yeah. So, Charlie, you picked four women to join this group. Um, tell us about the process and, and how these two became a part of it. Um, there wasn't really a, a process, actually, that much at all. It was kind of just like <laughs> I've always wanted to work with a, a band, um, a, a female band. Um, you know, like imagine like the Runaways if they had yeah. Instagram now like I kind of always had this idea of like working alongside a group of women who had that kind of punk ethos and I J Debbie was my drummer in my band when I toured with the band and Gabby and I had worked together mm. um on like multiple video shoots mm -hmm. and knew each other from kind of like parties mm. and around and stuff and um Georgia, who was the bassist, and Chloe, who was the guitarist in the band, we also knew each other, Georgia and I, a long time. And Chloe um, was opening for me with her other band, Kitten, on tour. And I was just kind of, like, hitting them all up on Instagram, like, hey, have you ever thought of being in a band before? Like, maybe it's cool if you meet each other. It could be kind of fun. Like, link them up on a text, and they started talking, and then um, it kind of just happened. It's meant to be. Yeah, what was, was it like for you both when you were approached for this? I mean... Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. really... I could see it happening, because I felt like the energy with... that, Like, we played with on stage, I was like, I remember thinking, I wish there were more girl bands out there like this that are, like, have got, like, this high energy and mm. it was really well-received, so I was, I was super into it. Yeah, who doesn't want to be in a band? <laughs> who Honestly. doesn't want to be in a band? Yeah. Exactly. Kind of just say, like, yes to everything, but I knew... <laughs> That's really dangerous. No, I'm serious. <laughs> well, with these kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody's going to get an inside look into this band because uh, Netflix has a new show um, airing November 15th. Um, it's called I'm With the Band, Nasty Cherry. Yes, let's I'm Charlie XCX. I'd like you to meet Nasty Cherry. I wish when I was 14, there was a band like Nasty Cherry, unashamedly real and also badass. <laughs> You ladies are pretty mysterious. I love the way that you guys came out on Instagram. This is literally the caption. It says, hi, we're Nasty Cherry, and we're the best band of 2019. <laughs> Did you get it, Atto? I got it. I picked four incredible women to launch a band 
in an era of the music industry where there's no roadmap to success. Are you guys famous? <laughs> Not yet. All right, what can you tease for us about the show? I mean, number one, watch it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's Pretty. yeah, it is kind of like this journey of of the girls. Um, two of them moved from the UK to LA, mm -hmm. um, living in a house together, recording and writing their music, um, and you know, I guess coming across like all of the difficulties that that comes yeah. with, like the vulnerabilities of being on stage for the first time, of writing songs for the first time, of you know, being women in the industry, mm -hmm. and um, how that is sometimes you know just this like weirdly inescapable obstacles sometimes mm. even though it absolutely shouldn't be mm. um and also just kind of like partying and completely yeah. doing your thing yeah. right yeah parties hangovers the drama it was it was amazing <laughs> i remember the first time we like when we released a song and we knew that we were gonna i don't know that other people could hear what we were doing and we'd been working on this project for what felt like so long because it was so intense the you know the situation that we that it came about in and um then yeah then the song we're now first single was really well received and it was just like a whirlwind yeah well you'll also be releasing more music so what are you excited for fans to hear oh gosh i feel like it's just i think everything that we've written has kind of been all of our journals and experiences and everything that happened while we lived together and like feeling lonely and not being with our families, all that kind of thing, and also having to be so open so fast. Mm. So we really just wrote about that. And there's, like, songs we wrote while we were really fucked up and songs we wrote when we had broken up with our whoever's and talked about it, and that's really everything. It's, it's like, the, the timeline of, of us knowing each other. And, and it's all kind of, like, coming together in an EP. Yeah. And, and the EP is really great. And I'm just... Yeah. Proud of you. Yeah. Proud of you Finally. Yeah. yeah well, awesome. I am really excited to hear the music and also to watch this show. Thank you all so much for joining me. Thanks Thank for having, you. Us. having us. You can watch I'm with the band Nasty Cherry on Netflix on November 15th. Up next, more Amsterdam. Welcome back, y'all. It's not time for Add Us, and that was such a fun show. It was. Charlie is such a lovely person, and I, just, I think people are starting to understand that she's a part of every facet of the music industry. Everything. Like, yeah. she does everything. It's crazy. It's like, Senorita, such an earworm song, like, just about everyone has heard. Mm -hmm. She wrote it. And then Charlie then collaborates with Kim Petras, the young queer pop star that's really rising right now, so she, like, literally is a good tastemaker, so mm -hmm. watch out for her. Mm -hmm. And I'll have to check out uh, her new film mm -hmm. with that great band. They mm -hmm. they look like they should be pop stars. They they look like, yes, exactly what you think that they, they would They came be, out of so. the mold, like, hello, I'm here to be famous. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, after our conversation about people's sexiest man alive, Christian tweeted, there must be guys in every gym and every strip mall in America who are sexier than and human oatmeal, John Legend. Oh, Christian. Human oatmeal is oh, a new phrase I'm going that to take. cold. That's amazing. I mean, human oatmeal gets that cold. That is cold. And I can guarantee you there are not men in every single gym in America who deserve to be on Sexiest, the cover God, of Sexiest Man no. Alive. No. That's no. a lie. Yeah. Well, we asked how you would describe your ideal adult weekend, and Bianca Pastorelli tweeted, sleeping. Facts. I could go to bed right now. Yeah, and I would say uh, with bouts of... Uh, 
yummy meals and some wine in between the sleeping. Just imagine Alex's <laughs> weekend of her sleeping, waking up and brunching and sleeping. That is that is like and pretty like a much cocktail what I do. And yeah. sleeping. It's like a cycle. Yeah. It's in repeat. It's got my mimosa with a little straw in it right next to my bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you to our guests today. Hayes Brown, Michael Edison Hayden, Joel Anderson, Adrian Seymour, Charlie XCX, and Nasty Cherry. We'll be back here at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day. Mm.